ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to episode 10 of what kind of episodes? <laughs> 10 episodes. I mean, technically with the extra episodes, we know we have more than 10, but this is our 10th, like, normal length normal content episode and we are very excited about it <laughs> yeah so well and i know i noticed we have a, a new listener from germany i know so, who they are i know i'm loving seeing that you know you, you can reach people all over the place so for tonight for my beer i'm having a Hofbrau original um because i wanted to celebrate our new friend in germany joining us well, that's wonderful. I didn't do that. I actually, you know, yesterday <laughs> I had an Oktoberfest beer and totally was thinking about our listener in Germany, but uh, I know I didn't do so that. Prost, friends. Prost. Um, but I am having a beer movie lions double IPA from Stone. Okay. Words. I fear movie lions that's literally the name i don't know <laughs> fear movie lions I have oh, no maybe idea. like the mgm lion where he's like oh, like maybe it's something i, I don't know, know but do you really fear that lion i think he's kind of cuddly i think he's cute i do feel bad for the way they <laughs> yeah, treat that lion like if you look yes at the- i hear they treated him badly yeah but um anyway well great glad we're here uh any what the ale moments this week mama Ooh, girl, I got a big one. <laughs> oh, gosh, what happened? Okay, so I realized only after listening to it that I greatly misspoke, uh, misspoke in my uh, Satanic Panic episode, huh. and I totally knew what I was trying to say, but I think I was um, not reading my notes and just trying to talk, and I totally misspoke on something, so oh. I wanted to have that be my what the ill moment and clarify now. So if you listen to the Satanic Panic episode, um, at some point I'm talking about Geraldo's episodes, and I said that Anton LaVey, who uh, you know wrote the um, Satanic Bible, I said that he was on Geraldo's show, and I totally misspoke. What I had meant to say was that um, you know Anton LaVey had said um, death to the weakling and wealth to the strong, and okay. that it was his daughter who was on Geraldo. And she was the one that um, when Geraldo, you know, because Geraldo is kind of exaggerating a bit. And um, when uh, Geraldo said something like, oh, there's a hundred, hundreds of thousands of Satanists. um, She was like, well, thousands, you know, so she was like trying to bring Geraldo down to what was more accurate. Um, And the person who I said looked like he should have been on Star Trek. (laughs) um, That person was Dr. Michael Aquino. And um, he was part of the Temple of Set. And um, so, you know, he was the one that talked about how, um, you know, Christianity had failed people and the agnostics and atheists came together to uh, form Satanism. Um, Yeah, he is the one that I meant look like he should be on Star Trek because you should totally check him out. He really does. Um, But Anton LaVey was not on Geraldo. And I could not believe that I didn't catch it as I was saying it. But when I listen to it I was like oh my gosh that was wrong so I apologize friends I will try to read my notes instead of just talking out of my ass for this next episode <laughs> great well and I mean I will say on our Instagram the picture is actually of Anton LaVey I don't yes, have a <laughs> guy so if you saw the guy in the cape that is Anton LaVey um I yes, felt like it is. we included in our in our post here um absolutely but yeah, no, that's fine. All right, so I apologize, though, and I will try harder to actually have my reading glasses on and read my notes instead of just talking. Um, um, so anyways, Alana, what is your what the yell moment of the week? I feel like this week has been really chaotic. Um, let's see, what what is a good what the yell moment this week? I, <laughs> um, so I live in Oakland. It's the Bay. It had started to get cold. I like closed my windows in my apartment because it was starting to get cold I had to wear socks one night to sleep which like if you don't I don't wear socks unless I have to so that's that's a thing and, and this then, child lives in flip-flops for anybody that was interested <laughs> and socks um if yes, you, you socks free the toe anyway so um, <laughs> I 
um woke up the other day it was cold I went to work I came out it was 85 degrees oh my gosh (laughs) I don't know I don't know why but we're having a heat wave here in the bay I know it's probably hot and hot where you are too but um yeah yeah, I'm really looking forward to cooler weather um but I am just baffled that it is October and spooky season and we're still and summer clothes because it is hot as hell so yeah that is probably my what the hell moment right now but at least your evening's cool off a bit though yes that's true I will say though my other what the hell moment is I finally fixed my soda stream after it has been broken for a year so I am very happy (laughs) very nice so win-win but all right so you have a story for us this week right yeah and I wanted to do something spooky for spooky season Um, And so I decided to do a story on a haunted house that I had always believed was one of the most haunted houses in America. Okay. Um, Obviously, through my research, I was a little disappointed to find out that's not exactly true. (laughs) Um, But it did prompt a book and a movie. So if you're looking for movies for spooky season, um, there's definitely movies associated with the story. And so I decided to do the story of a haunted house that's about 30 miles outside of New York City. Oh, I know. um, (laughs) Nestled in an area of Long Island. Um, And Alana, you know. So what house do you think I'm talking about? I'm pretty damn sure it's the Amador. Amador. Oh, my Lord. Amityville Horror House. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to talk about the murder that happened at the Amityville house. And then I'm going to get into the family that lived there after the murders happen and what they said went on at the house and I'll get into some of the the book and movie info um did you yeah because there was a lot that I just didn't know so are you gonna get into the power couple that is involved with this movie as well or the yes I am I am gonna mention a a certain um investigation that was done okay and there are videos of interviews with them so yeah I will get into that a bit too um so uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, the Amityville house is, uh, it was at 112 Ocean Avenue. That address has since changed <laughs> because people didn't like all the people coming to find the house. Um, but on November 13th, 1974, at about 3.15 a.m., uh, this house was the scene of a mass murder where nearly an entire family was murdered oh, wow. using a Marlin rifle. Uh-huh. Uh, those who were murdered were husband and wife Ronald Sr. and Louise and uh, four of their children Don, Allison, Mark, and John okay. um, and their 23 year old son Ronnie DeFeo uh, he was the sole survivor um, and also found to be the murderer oh wow so, how old yeah. were the kids if he was only 23 I mean they must have been pretty young they were all younger than him. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, the story goes, so like at first when, you know, the police came, uh, Ronnie tried to say that like he found the bodies after the murders and originally like he tried to say that it was a hitman, and mm-hmm. he said that his dad had like mob ties and that it must've been a hit. And apparently there is no evidence that there is any mob ties that I could find. Um, but that was her, his original story. Okay. Then the next day he confessed. Um, and a lot of people had questions as to why he did it. And so some people thought, you know, maybe he was after life insurance money. Some people thought he had a psychotic break or, um, you know, he did have a history of like drug and alcohol abuse. So some people thought maybe that played into it. And then there were other stories of maybe a supernatural or otherwise unexplainable reason why he might have murdered his family. Um, and you know, Ronnie definitely played into some of those theories. Um, I will say that when like neighbors and other community members heard of the murders, Mm -hmm. pretty much everybody was like, Oh yeah, Ronnie did it. Um, and the reason why they felt that way was apparently he had like a history of drug use violence um, and often would get into physical fights with his father. And there was one person that was interviewed and he said, all Ronnie did was drugs, gamble and fight. 
So everybody in the community basically believed that he was capable of murder because he was just kind of an aggressive dude and liked to pick fights. Um, so, you know, the other things that I want to point out is that um, there were a lot of religious artifacts in the house. And so the family really did present as they, they were a good Christian family. And, um, you know, to the community, they try to present a certain way. But um, people that knew the family well did say that the father was very verbally and physically abusive mm-hmm. um, and that he would just sometimes go into a rage for no reason. Mm-hmm. But a lot of his rage was directed at Ronnie, the oldest son, oh. which I think is pretty common in abusive families. You tend to pick on the oldest son or the oldest child. It tends to try to protect the younger child, their children. So they step in a lot. Um, so a lot of the abuse goes to the oldest child. Um, and then Ronnie had some friends that had witnessed the dad beating the wife and Ronnie. And so a lot of the friends were like afraid of Ronald Sr. and like stayed away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's like a really sad part of the story, you know, because if there was a lot of abuse, you know, you kind of have empathy for Ronnie. Um, but you know, your empathy stops at killing Ronald senior, the killing the mom and the other siblings. Um, I don't have a lot of empathy for somebody that's going to do all that. Yeah. If you are a survivor of abuse, a victim of abuse, like I absolutely believe that if you kill your abuser, like not that you should get off easier, but like, yeah. you know, on one hand, like you were doing what you had to do in that moment, potentially. Well, and definitely if it was in the middle of abuse, I mean, that to me is yeah. self-defense all the way. Um, I really yeah. have a ton of, um, yeah, I have a ton of empathy for that. But when you go to killing your siblings and your mother, um, you know, well, your mother is also, also. Yeah. Like what was his motivation for killing the family? Like what, what was this? Like There really was no explanation, but I'll tell you what some of the things were that he tried to say to defend himself. Um, he tried to and so, vanity. Was he one of those? He did. Um, and so, you know, I want to, I want to explain a little bit. He was working with a um, defense attorney named William Weber. Okay. And one of the things that Weber tried to point out was they did some, um, I don't know, like testing to see, you know, because the Marlin rifle, I mean, a rifle is a loud gun, yeah. you know, and they had burrs. And um, and so they did like a, a test to see, you know, how far away could you hear a blast from a Marlin rifle? And they found that you could hear it from four to five blocks away from the house. Okay. Um. But all the neighbors denied hearing the nine shots that were fired that night. And um, all of the neighbors said that they only heard the dog barking during that time, but none of them heard the nine shots. And the entire family remains asleep during the attack. Um, And so, you know, again, you would think they would wake up, you know, you hear the first shot to the dad and it was two shots to the dad. You would think the wife and the kids would have woken up. Um, but all of them were found like laying face down in the same position, kind of with their hands up. Um, like, over and so, oh. you know, like when you're sleeping and you're kind of like your hands are up by your pillow. Yeah. Um, but all of them were kind of in that similar position. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, a lot of people had a theory that like somebody was holding to them, them to the beds or a ghost or spirit was holding them to the beds. Those were some of the theories. Um, mm-hmm. Did they do no defensive wounds, nothing like that. Um, And then another theory was that, um, you know, maybe they were shot elsewhere and positioned that way, but all the forensic evidence suggests they were shot right where they were found. Um, So, you know, my thought about it, and I didn't read this anywhere, but my thought was like, maybe they did wake up and hear the blast, but maybe he forced them to stay in that position and shot them. You know, maybe he yelled at them to lay down and put their hands up or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I didn't read that anywhere, but I mean, that could explain. But again, a lot of the people were thinking there might have been some paranormal thing holding them down. Yeah, the and- only thing I could think of with that, too, is like if they had been drugged or they had been, you know, given something. But yeah. if there's nothing on toxicology or maybe they didn't think to look at toxicology then. But, you know, I don't know if they looked at toxicology. I didn't see anything like that. But that that could be a good theory, too. I hadn't thought of that. Because like maybe... Maybe he came over for dinner, spiked the food of some sort, whatever they had, and that, yeah, you know, not, yeah. not no, like I, that, that totally could have been a thing. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see anything about that. I mean, because I didn't read the autopsies, but um, 
you know, I didn't read any theories about that, but that could be. And then there was in one interview I saw of Ronnie, he said something like, um, you know, after the shooting, you know, he was like looking down at his dead family. And so then he decided to go get his friends and bring the friends back to the house. Oh. Um, that was like all he said. And he didn't say like what he wanted the friends to do or like how the friends responded or anything. So I, I was surprised there was no follow-up questions after that. Um, so I don't know what that was about. But, you know, that was one of the other theories. Help him cover it up? But but they didn't, you know, so maybe his friends wouldn't. I don't know. But, you know, that was the other theory. Maybe his friends helped him hold them down. But, again, after that first shot to the dad, that would mean he'd have to have 10 friends to hold down the other five. Right. Um, You know, because if I was a kid and I heard that, I would run and hide, you know. Um, So, you know, yeah. yeah, So I just don't believe that 10 10 friends came and held them down. but anyway, so let's get into, um, you know, some of the things that he said. So, you know, um, they did try to do an um, insanity plea, and there were a couple of different things that he said. So, you know, first he um, he said that there was like he was watching a war movie on TV. And he did say he was under the influence of drugs, but he didn't say what kind of drugs at that time. Mm-hmm. And then he said that he heard voices of his family plotting to kill him. Oh, wow. And that a woman in a black hooded jacket and gloves, he called her black handed, but in all the descriptions, it says hooded and gloved. Okay. Um, that she handed him the rifle. Uh-huh. Rifle. He described her as a demon. And then there was another story where he said that he heard voices that were commanding him to kill the family. Um, and so um, I have a question about this real quick. Okay. What year did this happen again? This was in, what did I say? 1974. You know what came out in 1974, right? <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of these things are connected, right? I just, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying an insanity plea that says the demon made him do it. That sounds like yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I'm going to bounce around for a minute because there is a weird tweak to this story. Okay. Um, and this is from just one particular witness. And um, this went, this was years later. So this didn't come up before the trial or anything. This was years later. But a drug enforcement agent who said that he was staking out the house at the, the night of the killing, um, he told a journalist named Rick Moran that he saw the sister Dawn leaving the house wearing a large hooded jacket with black cl- gloves and carrying the rifle. And apparently he said that she drove towards the point um, where the dock is, and that's where the rifle rifle was later found. Oh. Um. So, you know, the questions were, you know, after this came out, but again, if he's a DEA agent, you would think that he would have brought this story up before the trial. And this was years later that he's reporting this to a reporter. I don't know about other things, but I know with like things that are like witness protection or whatever, there are certain rules where you can't say certain things until like a staff of limitations is gone or something. So maybe. Yeah. I mean, that could be a thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That could be a thing. So when that came out, so the, the journalist Rick Moran kind of had a theory that, um, you know, obviously his theory was that like this uh, description he had of this demon handing him the gun, that that was Dawn handing him the gun and that he was high and confused and whatever. Um, or the other theory is that she she was even more actively involved because apparently her clothes did have some unburnt gunpowder which could suggest that she fired the rifle that night. So like they um, were together and then he killed her essentially. Yeah. So, so that was what Moran's theory really is, is that um, either Ronnie and Don worked together and plotted to kill their parents and he ended up killing her too, or that Don killed the whole family and then Ronnie killed her. Um, and so, you know, those are some theories that came up like years after all of this. Um, but Ronnie was given six life sentences for all of the murders. And um, he did say um, in a 1994 interview, he right. was talking about a priest that came into the courtroom and was watching his testimony. And he said, 
the when the priest was watching my performance on the stand and I'm like the word performance <laughs> you know my performance um, on the stand Ronnie Ronald Ron Ron, Ron. yeah yeah that just sounds like okay you know you were acting um but he said that you know the priest uh felt like he had to be influenced by the devil and then, um, you know, and, and then later in a 2002 primetime live interview from prison, mm-hmm. he recounted all of the testimony and explained that he committed the murders because his parents were abusive and that he had been drunk and high on heroin at the time. He okay. says that he had acted alone and there were no commanding voices or supernatural happenings. You know, this man is wild. Mm-hmm. To me, because, okay, I think, I think we're never going to get a clear answer from Ronnie, ever. But I think the thing is, is maybe he was high, maybe he was doing things. Maybe Don was involved, maybe whatever. But the the reality is, is I think he is like, well, we have movies and we have this and we have that that are keeping us famous. Let's just like play into it and keep it chaotic. Like, I don't think we're ever going to get a straight answer. Well, and we are going to get back to his attorney, William Weber, because okay. Weber was definitely out to sensationalize and make some money. <laughs> so, I'm sure. But before we get back to Weber, um, let's get into the family that bought the house after um, the murders. And um, so 13 months after the murders, the Lutz family purchased the home. And the price was um, reduced to $80,000 because of the murders. It wasn't selling. Nobody wanted to buy it. You know what? That's a beautiful house. I'd be it's like, I have houses all the time. Like, I'd probably take 80 grand for that house. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Um, so the house was purchased by a man named uh, George Lutz and his wife, Kathy, and her three children, Christopher, Daniel, and Missy. So George was the stepfather to these three kids. Um, we love a bonus dad we love a bonus dad yeah bonus dad yeah um and but the family only lasted 28 days in the house before they left it you know terrified oh um, is what they um so i'm gonna get into the initial things that they reported um and then you know as i go on later we will see that things were embellished and more stories were added, you know, um, but I'm just going to start with what they initially said. Okay. Um, so they report that right away, some unusual things were happening. And so one of the first things that happened, and they say this was within an hour of moving in, that they had a dog named Harry and okay. that Harry was on a leash, uh, like a long leash in the yard and um, that Harry tried to jump over a fence, but his chain was too short and so he was basically hanging on the other side of the fence, like choking to death when they found him. Oh, oh no. I know. And so they were like, okay, what did Harry like sense something and was trying to get away from something or did like a de- demon dark spirit kind of vibe force the dog to do this. Um, but they were saying he never behaved like that before. Um, so that was the first thing that first hour And then apparently George had a friend who knew the history of the house. And so he encouraged George to have it blessed by a priest, which he did that first day. Um, And there was a particular room that it's, uh, it was Kathy's sewing room. And, you know, I guess that's where there was like a lot of, um, you know, a supernatural presence felt. And so the priest said that when he went in that room, he felt a presence and he was slapped in the face and told to get out. Oh, wow. So both of those things happen on the first day. Okay. Um, now, some of the other super normal activity. Um, I do want to say that I did read somewhere that there were some rumors that the stepfather, George, may have had a history of dabbling in the occult. Okay. So I don't know if that's true, but that was something that there were rumors of. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the supernatural stuff seemed to be happening a lot to George. So... He said that he would wake up at about 3.15 every morning, which was the same time that Ron carried out the murders. Um, When he would wake in the middle of the night, you know, he would say that he felt restless and uneasy and he would report hearing strange noises. Um, He began feeling really sick and losing significant weight. His family described him as having personality changes, like he would become 
very angry and snap at the family, Mm -hmm. um, kind of out of the blue. That wasn't really his normal personality. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there were rumors that like he was constantly seen cutting wood and building fires because he just couldn't get warm. And the family said that, you know, they didn't experience the cold the same way he did that, you know, it seemed like that was attached to George. Uh Um, There was a report that Kathy, while in the sewing room, felt an embrace from behind and that she believed that was a spirit of a woman, you know, but of course there was nobody in the room with her and she was really frightened by that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, They said there was sometimes strange odors or just like footsteps or screaming in the night. And, um, there was a window that they said would open and close on its own. And apparently the window did slam the hand of one of the boys, um, which we'll come back to that later. There's a story there too. Okay. Um, and then the only other thing I think that was in the, the original accounts was that, um, their daughter, Missy described having a friend named Jody, who she said presented as a large pig. Oh. And that Jody told Missy that she was happy Missy was living there and that she was going to stay there with her forever. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, so a, little, a little spooky. I mean, not as bad. Like, I feel like, I don't know, ghosts are damned to eternity to stay in the same place or whatever. So, like, being your friend forever. Okay, great in theory. But, like, yeah, still not great if she's presenting like a pig. <laughs> Which we'll get back to. <laughs> See all this stuff we have to come back around. <laughs> um, I <hope> weird. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's like most of these, there's like a little more to the story, but I don't want to give it away right now. Um, so the Lutzes left the house for good on January 1476. So again, 28 days after they moved in. Um, and George said, quote, we did not move in and move out as the same family. All of us were quite frightened by the time we left and we knew no fear before we moved in. The fear alone is something that changed all of us. Wow. And did they know about the murders beforehand? Like was yes, this? they did. Okay. I yeah, mean, I... it was something that had to be disclosed. Okay. Yeah. And, and they knew that's why they were getting the deal on the house. I mean, $80,000 for this house, even in the 70s was like a huge deal. No, I mean, that house is beautiful. It's it's huge and gigantic and it's on Long Island and it's beautiful. And yeah, Yeah. there's no way. Yeah. So they knew they were getting a deal and they knew why. Okay. Okay. So um, they, you know, when they first moved out, they moved in with Kathy's mom um, and then George began taking steps to have the house investigated. So originally he reached out to a man named Kaplan and he was, um, he presented himself to George as a parapsychologist, but George later found out that he was more of a vampireologist, vampirologist. I don't know. Um, but he was somebody who was an expert on vampires. Okay. Um, but the Kaplans, uh, explained that they would publish any findings so that, you know, if they found supernatural things, they were going to write about and publish that. But if they also found out that there was nothing there, they were going to be honest about that. Okay. Um, but you know, they had agreed to work together and then there was a day where, um, you know, Kaplan made a statement to the press saying that he was going to be involved in this investigation. And that same morning, George and Kathy gave a press conference, um, just talking about, you know, what they experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, but then George ended up canceling with Kaplan saying he didn't want any publicity, but Kaplan's like, dude, you had a press conference this morning. So, you know, how could you say you're firing me because you don't want publicity, but you had a press conference this morning. That sounds so like it seems to the Kaplan's control the narrative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it seems to the Kaplan's that he didn't want them to report if they found nothing and he was afraid they might find nothing. Um, okay. So, and then the other thing that I want to add is, is this press conference that George and Kathy did. Okay. Guess who arranged that press conference? The Warrens? No, William Weber, who was DeFeo's attorney. Oh my God, no way. <laughs> and Weber was working on Ronnie's appeal at this time. Uh-huh. So this is where we get to talk about the book deal. Because <laughs> I was going to say, this is oh. very self-serving for the attorney to be involved. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Anyway, so Weber connected with them over a possible book deal because he was working on Ronnie's appeal. Him and Ronnie were working on getting Ronnie a book deal. And then when he found out what happened with the Lutzes, he was like, oh, you know, you guys, you know, and I think the Lutzes were already talking about getting a book deal. And so he was like, we should work together. And so he came to their house and they had apparently several bottles of wine. And um, so, but Weber had brought a contract over saying that like they would work together and he would share information with them about, you know, Ronnie, the murders and the trial and things like that and the investigation. And then, you know, they would um, give him a cut of their book deal and they would give Ronnie 5% if they, you know, if Ronnie like let them use some of the information about the murders. And so they agreed to it. Um, but the other things that were discussed this night, it was not just the, you know, what is the contract for the book deals, but Weber brought like crime scene photos and investigation reports and things like that. Um, and so he says that they just started discussing possession as part of Ronnie's defense and that that would help them sell more books and maybe even get movie rights. Okay. So. This is where, you know, some of the Lutz's stories about, you know, possession or haunting um, started shifting a little bit based on things that Weber told them. So a couple of the examples of that are that uh, Weber had showed them photos. Um, and in the photos, there was like a blackish greenish fingerprint powder, powder kind of all over the house, but particularly on the doors and keyholes and things like that. Um, and so the Lutz's were like, oh, you know, we'll We'll say that there was green slime coming out of the walls and that um, green slime was coming out of the keyholes. And so they went from fingerprint powder to we're going to say that slime dripping from the walls. Yeah. And that did make it into the book. Um, and if anybody has seen the movie, I've never read the book, but if anybody has seen the movie in the movie, it goes from being green slime to blood dripples. Um and then, you know, one of the other photos that he showed had some dead flies that were in Don's bedroom. And so then they just they added that into the book saying there was a swarm of flies in this bedroom. And then, of course, in the movie, they amplified that more. And, you know, the flies attacked the priest. So, you know, some of these things were being embellished. I was going to um, say, I mean, I, dead flies in a bedroom after not having anyone living there for a year and a half and then so well, this was after the murders so there would be flies around anyways you know but yeah the picture was just some flies on the floor um so some of the other embellishments that came into the book um were that um uh that the um the toilets and the china were turning black Oh. Um, they said a nearby garage door was opening and closing mm -hmm. and that a spirit knocked a knife down in the kitchen. And okay. then George and his son, Daniel said that they saw a pig like creature with red eyes staring down at them from a window. And okay. then George, yeah. And then George says that he woke up to Kathy levitating above the bed and that there was also a time where Christopher and Daniel were also both levitating off their bed. So none of that was in the original report. This all came out in the book. Um, right. Yeah. So, Again, you know, self-serving. <laughs> yes. So all of, you know, if they did experience anything haunted, I don't know. But everything was embellished for the book. And then again, ramped up even more for the movie. Totally. Um, and then, um, so there was this um, anchor named Laura, and she worked for the New York TV station, um, news station, and she wanted to investigate. Mm -hmm. So Alana, who is the power couple that she brought in to investigate? The Warrens. The Warrens. The, the Warrens. The Warrens. I yeah. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who the Warrens are, but Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, from Connecticut, paranormal investigators. They are the people that inspired the Conjuring movies. Um, so yeah, so she brought them in. Yep. And apparently uh, George met the Warrens and Laura, the anchor and the camera crew at the edge of the property. And okay. he said he didn't want to step foot on the grounds, um, you know, and so he, you know, just sent them in, gave them permission to investigate. And Lorraine, um, there's a video of her saying there was a horribly foreboding feeling throughout the house 
And then she also said that it was clearly infested with something not human. Okay. Um, so on March 6, 1976, the reporter and the team of researchers went back to actually film there. And um, there were a few, you know, things that were reported. Um, and so I'll go through those really quickly. Um, so one of the things, and this one, you know, because um, I, I will say the other things that happened, it just happened to the people who were the paranormal investigators. Um, but one thing did happen to the crew. So the cameraman, Steve, um, you know, when he got to the top of the stairs, he like bent over cr- clutching his chest and he was reporting stabbing chest pains. Um, so that was the one thing that happened to like the crew or the uh, journalists or the news anchor. Uh-huh. Um, now, so that was the only thing that happened to them. And then they were filming and um, there was a psychic named Mary Downing that was a part of the team. And she said that she saw a face of a little girl out the window and heard weeping. And so then Mary said, oh, you know, I told the little girl to walk towards the light um, and that everybody that loved her would be there waiting for her. Um, And then she also said that she saw visions when they were in this one room that she saw visions of like men or, you know, demons or whoever lining the room like hooded, um, you know, and so she described them as looking like monks, but you know, that could have like a culty vibe of like people in hoods hiding their faces, but like lining the walls of this room. Right. Um, And then the only other thing that she said was that, um, that she said that she went around with holy water, you know, and and as she would shake the holy water that she heard sizzling. Um, but of course none of that's caught on camera. Nobody else heard the sizzling. Hmm. Um, but she, she says she heard it. Um, now Lorraine said that she felt evil spirits and the quote from her is, I hope this is as close to hell as I ever get. Hmm. So she, you know, she definitely said there was like a presence there. And then Ed at some point was sitting down at a table to lead a seance and he had a crucifix in front of him. And then he like suddenly like jerked back in his chair and he said he felt like something assaulted him. But again, other than the the camera crew seeing him like lean back in his chair, they didn't see anything happen to him. Um, Now, the one thing that happened, though, that is interesting and nobody had an explanation for was they did have a, um, a camera on a tripod, you know, not a video camera, just a regular still camera um, on a tripod at the top of the stairs. I was going to say, is this the stairs picture? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So this is the one thing that does feel supernatural. Um, So they had this, you know, camera on this tripod and it wasn't until later they were going through the pictures and then they saw this one picture where it's clearly a little kid. It looks like he might be wearing glasses um, peeking out of the one of the bedrooms and there were no children in the house at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that picture is very clear. Like there is clearly a little boy. I think it's a boy, a little boy standing there. Um, mm-hmm. And, and apparently they later showed that picture to Missy and she's the one that said, you know, she would play with Jody. Um, and she said that that was the kid that she would play with. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, at this point, the bank reclaimed the property and um, all of their belongings were just auctioned off because they never ever returned to claim any of their property that was in the house and then they moved to California Mm -hmm. um and then there was another investigation team that came out and this was led by Dr. Hans Holzer and he was a parapsychologist um and it said that he had written many books like maybe 50 books by this time so I don't know if that's true but that's what it said um I'm impressed I can't even write one so I said, I can't even write one. So I'm impressed with 50. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, and apparently he came to the house with medium Ethel Johnson Myers. Um, And of course, I really do feel like we need to keep a tally of how often this comes up in a haunted house scenario. But what do you think this house was built upon? A Native American burial ground. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. We really should keep a tally because I feel like that's going to be recurring. Can I just like rant for a second about this? Okay, yes, please. Anything in fucking the United States is a Native American burial ground. There is probably 
a native human that was murdered or something or something horrible happened where you yes. live. So just we're almost at Indigenous People's Day anyway. We might as well just like address it now. And like, we are here first. <laughs> we're here first. We share their blood. Like yes. I just feel very strongly like the idea that a Native American and um you know burial ground means that something is haunted. That is bullshit. That doesn't that shouldn't mean anything. Yeah. But, just, but I feel like it's so often used as like, oh, it's scary and it's haunted by these natives, you know, and, and it, it adds it adds to the racism of indigenous folks being quote unquote savage or quote unquote yeah. whatever. Like, yeah. I think it adds to this negative narrative of these people. So like, yeah. Fuck yeah, that. I agree 100 percent. So but of course, Ethel says that she sensed and she called it an Indian. We know Native American yep. um, on a horse. And, um, and, and then reportedly during, you know, this time that she was in the house, reportedly she developed an Adam's apple. (laughs) I don't know how that happens, but reportedly she developed an Adam's apple and she began speaking in a strange language with masculine voice. Um, and said that, you know, um, that it was a native cemetery and there was a sacred, it was a sacred place where a chief had been disturbed and he wanted them off the land. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But that was one of the other investigations. Okay. Well, I don't know how I feel about the Adam's apple. I've never heard of that before. But that is interesting. <laughs> if that's the thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, I, that seems very strange. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they ended up... Um, getting a person to write the book for them. The person who wrote the book was Jay Anson. Um, And, you know, um, again, I, you know, I already mentioned, but the stories got bigger and bigger in the book and then bigger and bigger in the movie. Totally. Um, And so um, when they started talking about doing the, um, the movie, um, Sandra Stern, who is the screenwriter for the movie, asked Jay Anson, who wrote the book, Right. Hey, do you believe this story? And Jay said, um, hey, I'm just a writer. It's not up for me to decide. <laughs> and then he went on. And apparently he would say this to a lot of people that mm-hmm. he's just about selling books and he wants to make millions of dollars. Um, yeah. And he doesn't care what he has to do to sell millions of books and make millions of dollars. But that's what he's going to do. But that's um, away from the credibility. Yeah. And so... Um, so, you know, it, one of, there was a journalist, I think, in one of the videos that I watched, mm-hmm. and he thought it was great karma that, um, that you know, Jay Anson did end up making millions of dollars off the book, um, but he died of a heart attack, so he never got to enjoy it. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, the, the journalist was kind of like, yeah, he was a little bit of an asshole about it, so he didn't have sympathy for him. Mm-hmm. Um and the Lutzes reportedly got $250,000. Um, and then Stern said, you know, the screenwriter for the movie said, I don't care if the movie was accurate. I was here to make a horror film. Um, and so, um, yeah. And then there was something, well, and there was lots of lawsuits. The Washington Post has a whole article about it. I didn't feel like including all of it because it just was like a lot of back and forth between Weber and the Lutzes about, yeah. you know, him saying they breached contract and them saying, you know, he's a fraud and, you know, and it just lots of back and forth, but um, there was something that said that the Lutzes were suing the makers of the Ryan Reynolds version of the movie. Um, but, but I don't know how that turned out. Um, and George Lutz is passed now. So um, that would be interesting to look into. I'm, I'm just curious for my own um, yeah. knowledge. So, yeah. Um, and then, um, so some of the things that, you know, are, um, you know, about whether or not this is valid or not. Um, so I will say that after telling this story, George and Kathy did take a lie detector to prove their innocence and that they were telling the truth and they did pass the lie detector. Um, now, some of the skeptics say, you know, that they were like very bogged down in legal and financial issues. Um, and so, you know, a lot of skeptics do believe that they had motive to create like this fantastical story in order to make money. Um, and so, you know, that's what some people believe. And then, um, the let's, uh, former lawyer, William Weber, um, you know, they fell out 
because of the money issues. Um, but in 79, he came out and just said, yeah, the three of them came up with a great horror story over several bottles of wine. And the Lutzes end up trying to sue him for that, <laughs> for saying that. <laughs> Honestly, though, um, I feel like that would make sense. Like, I love the idea of a house where a huge murder took place and the house is super fucking haunted after, right? Like, that sounds amazing in theory. Yeah. But like, when you think about it, like, okay, maybe not every place you live, someone has brutally been murdered, but a lot of times someone has died or someone, you know, whatever, there's history there. So the idea that like, you're going to get a lot of spirits and then you watch these ghost hunting shows and everyone loses their minds over an orb or a whisper or a whatever, but like, it's not a lot. So like, I do think horror movies have to embellish anyway. So it would make sense that in the- Well, and if I was doing a horror movie, my job is to get butts in the seats and make money. Yeah. You know, so- I do wish that they would take, you know, because at the beginning of the movie, it says a true story. This is clearly not a true story. Well, Um, I don't even think it says based on. I think it says a true story. And I can have that wrong, but. I um, haven't watched the movie in years, which I I think I should do now. Um, Well, the kids and I, we watched both of them. We watched the original and then we watched the Ryan Reynolds version because I'm a fan of Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) We all love Ryan Reynolds. He's a great Canadian man. Well, they um, are good movies, you know, but they're totally embellished. Um, yeah, no, I've only seen the original. I remember it was very, I mean, I knew of DeFeo. I knew a bit of the story. I was like, yeah. it sounds a little embellished, but. Yeah. Well, and then the, the other things that, um, you know, came up either for or against, I mean, obviously against, um, you know, murderer Ronnie, Ronnie DeFeo. Um, and he died in 2021 in New York, um, in a New York correctional f- facility. Oh, um, wow. But, you know, he did say that, yeah, there was no possession that he wasn't hearing voices. There was nothing compelling him. Um, yeah. And so, you know, he was one more thing saying, yeah, there was nothing in that house. Um, now, on the opposite end of that, Mr. Ed Warren said to the oh, Washington Ed Post. Warrens will never say something wasn't haunted. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Ed Warren said to the Washington Post, quote, if this was a hoax, we wouldn't be in on it or the priest. Why would they leave behind all their possessions on the mere chance of a bestseller? They lost $400,000 because, but that's not the point, you know, but, oh, but that's not the point. (laughs) Um, So Ed Warren was definitely, you know, this was not a hoax. We would not have been on it if it was a hoax, but again, you know, this would hurt their reputation if they admitted that they were in on a hoax. So he can't admit it. I mean, sadly, the Warrens have both passed, but like, yeah their museum is still intact. Annabelle still goes to horror con every year. Yeah. Like there's so many things where like they were making bank off of this. Yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't have if I was involved in something that was a hoax. If you yeah. know, I mean, that was my bread and butter. Yeah. And so I, yeah, they would never admit something was a hoax. Um, I, I tend to trust Lorraine's word more than Ed's word personally, me, myself and I, but, um, yeah. Yeah, she seemed know. like she had more actual clairvoyant skill and, you know, he just seemed like he was along for the ride. Yeah, and, like, he's not a priest, but he can exercise things. Explain that to me. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then just to wrap up the family stuff, um, you know, George and Kathy divorced in 1980. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so not, I mean, not long, really, after all this happened. And then... Um, there was apparently Kathy had some kind of vision of an old woman when she looked in the mirror, an old woman looking back at her. Mm -hmm. Um, And she did die at the age of 57 of emphysema. And this was in 2004, but the emphysema, I mean, having a respiratory condition and it did make her look much older. And so some people say that like her seeing that in the mirror was a premonition of what was to come for her. Um, So I don't know who said that or, you know, how that connected or when she had this vision. Um, but that was what one thing that I read. And then, um, you know, George ended up dying in 2006 of heart disease and he was 59 years old at the time. And, you know, even though many people think that this whole thing was a hoax and it was planned, um, in order to get a book and movie deal, George stood by this story until his death. He did admit that in the book and in the movie things were embellished, but he says that their original stories were true. Okay. Um, the daughter Missy, um, she died at the age of 61 in 2018. 
And she was reportedly the first one to feel some supernatural energy. Um, but her whole life, she tried to stay out of the media. Oh. And she did say, um, you know, that there were some scary things that happened, but that it was not as scary as what was portrayed. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the sons, Daniel Lutz, appeared in a 2013 documentary called My Amityville Horror. And he really stayed true to the idea that this was a haunted thing that happened. Um, and he said that the, um, at the house ruined his life and that he continues to have nightmares every day. Wow. And then the other son, Christopher, um, he said that although the book, you know, that it was not a hoax, but that the book extremely amplified it. Um, and apparently he had regular like clashes with, um, George, the stepdad. And so he ended up moving away from the family when he was 16 years old. Oh, wow. Um, so estranged from the family. Mm-hmm. Um, before I tell you like, what's up with the house now, I do want to say, um, that there was, um, a neighbor that, um, you know, in terms of like the, the story of the, um, pig, pig face looking through the window or whatever, um, there was a neighbor, you know, and he said that he had a very fat cat and that Ronnie DeFeo called his fat pig, his cat pig. Um, and so, um, you know, he says that his cat would often go up onto that second floor, you know, the, um, on the roof by the windows of the second floor. And so, you know, and the cat did have kind of reddish orangish eyes. Um, but he said that he believes the Lutzes knows that that was the cat, but they use like the pig face story because they called the cat pig and they were like, Ooh, let's, you know, say it was a pig face at the window. Um, but it was really just the neighbor's cats. Um, so, and that neighbor was very bothered. I mean, if you see his interview, he was very bothered by all of the publicity and, and visitors coming to the town because they would park on his yard and were disrespectful and whatever. Um, I mean, me too. Like, could you imagine yeah. something like living in a sleepy Long Island town and then this murder happening and then ghost crap happening and then a book and a movie and all these people freaking out? I mean, it would be yeah. to be a neighbor, I'm sure. Yeah. And I know I said I was going to go back to the window thing, um, but I forgot to do that. So I'm going to do that real quick before we wrap up. Yeah, um, so, you know, because George had said that his son's hand was like slammed in the window. Um, and he told a reporter that he had taken the his son to the hospital after the his hand was slammed because he said it was like very injured. Um, and so the reporter said, oh, you know, I'm going to get those records. And then George said, oh, well, you know, actually, we didn't take him to the hospital. We just treated him at home and wrapped it at home. So, you know, even then, George was caught in a lie or an exaggeration. I was going to say, don't exaggerate, George. (laughs) Yeah. And then there was um, these two investigators. They were journalists, you know, Um, and this was the one that was kind of like laughing that um, Jay Anson didn't live to enjoy his money. Um, But they did go into the sewing room where the, you know, the window um, supposedly would open and close on its own. And the investigator that was with him or journalist that was with him um, stepped on a floorboard and you could feel the board like move. And the window would fly open when, when you stepped on that board. And then when you lifted your foot off the board, it would close. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but they were saying, they don't think it was rigged that way. They just think the way the house settled, um, you know, but they could step on and off this board and the window would go up and down. Um, so there was truth that, that the window was, you know, opening and closing on its own, you know, quote on its own, but it was related to this floorboard. So again, they feel like they noticed that that was happening and then embellished that to say it was like a ghost opening and closing it. Right. But it was just related to the way that the boards settled with the house or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just interesting. Um, and then, uh, so I will say, oh, because one of the other things um, that came up in the book and then was in the movie too, was that like windows were blown out or like a door was burst open or that kind of thing. Um and, you know, so people believe that that was true. And when they talked to the owners of the house, they said the house was like in perfect condition and there were no windows or doors busted out. There was no slime on the walls. <laughs> like, you know, that none of that was true. Um, and, you know, it, uh, it has had four other families in it since the murders. 
and not one of them have reported any supernatural occurrences. Um, the most recent cell was in uh, February 2017, and it was to an undisclosed it, owner. It was like huh? a thing that the house was for sale again. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it sold for 605000 So remember, you know, in the 70s, they bought it for 80000 This time it sold for 605000 um, And this was even $200,000 $200, less than the asking price. So they were asking eight hundred five. dollars um, Okay. And, and again, they changed the address from, you know, 112 Ocean Avenue to 108 Ocean Avenue. Um, and I will say that the people that owned it immediately after the Lutzes, um, they were James and Barbara Cromarty. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, they bought it after the bank like repossessed it and they ended up moving out and renting, um, renting it out instead of living there. But it was not because of supernatural occurrences. It was because there were so many people coming to look at the house and they would be on the property or looking through windows or um, people would ring their doorbell and ask if Ronnie DeFeo is home. Um, and so they just felt harassed by people who wanted to see the Amityville house that they ended up moving out and just renting it. Yeah. Um, but again, no supernatural occurrences. So I have to say, you know, because I don't know where I heard it or why I heard it, but I had always thought this was one of the most haunted places in America. Yeah. I was a little bummed to find out that, that it doesn't sound very haunted at all. You know, it's, it's a hard thing. That photo is so convincing. That photo, I mean, you see the little kid. You see I the pictures. I actually... Maybe I'll see if I'm allowed to post it on Instagram for copyright things. I don't want to like infringe on people's money, but, um, I know with how the picture it, the kid looks like one of the DeFeo siblings. I don't remember which one. And, um, it's, it's one of those things where like, I would believe that like a residual haunting, like something could be there. That family was murdered. They were there. Yeah. You know, and so that makes sense to me. Everything else does not make sense to me. And that's what I just go back to. If the Warrens were trying to save their reputation, I could see them being like, oh, look, we found this photo to prove that there was a haunting because this kid was there. Um, you know, and I only say that, you know, because if everything else was bullshit, I'm a little like, yeah, they just didn't want to be caught up in the bullshit, you know? Yeah, I think I, I really think the Warrens did a really good job of making it seem very convincing that every case they were a part of was legit. There was yeah. not, you know, whatever. The Conjuring, all of that definitely embellishes every single one of those movies yeah. while they touch on a lot of the stuff. It's very embellished. But yeah, we'll probably absolutely cover more um, Warren stories, I'm sure. <laughs> absolutely. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I could see them trying to save face after spending a lot of time in the house and maybe quote unquote being fooled and then yeah. being, okay, we're just going to save face. Like, well, what? they were, they were probably just worried that this would ruin their reputation, you know? So, you know, again, I don't know if they did anything, but you know, it wouldn't shock me if they had a picture out there just to save their reputation. Yeah. Like I said, the picture is very convincing. I will, I can probably get the picture. I don't know if I could get the side by side with the sibling. I don't know how that works. I will try. Um, cause there's a DeFeo sibling that looks a lot like the kid in the photo. So, hmm. um, I do think that's interesting. Okay. But, but um, I kind of wouldn't want to give the let's just not that, I mean, they're past now, the parents are, but, um, I kind of wouldn't want to give them a bunch of money reading the book, but the movies are you know, quite good if you are interested in a horror film. So, you know, it's Halloween season and, it, you know, they are good movies. You just have to know when it says it's a true story, it's not quite a true story. Yeah, but I, you know, I feel like every horror movie has a bit of, yeah. a bit of a grounding and a real story. And I think that's kind of cool. So, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Is that all you had to do with Amadou? That's all I have for that one. Oh, well, wonderful. Um, I guess, yeah, what's left is you all, we want to keep getting your spooky stories. We really want to get this like listeners episode 
tale going for you guys. We'd love to hear what you have experienced. If you have been to places we have covered, awesome. If you have an experience with La Llorona, awesome. If you just want to tell us something spooky or crazy that has happened to you, awesome. We'll take any of it. Just yeah, even if you were visited by a family member or yeah. yeah. Um, so we'll take anything. Just feel free to message us either on Instagram at what the L pod. You could email us at what the L pod at gmail.com. Um and we'll respond. We also are super, super like working on our Patreon, trying to get some cool stuff going. So um we're working on some bonus episodes some extra like fan art not fan art but like we're gonna make pretty art things that you all can like buy stickers of and things um so we're all working on that stuff so yeah and maybe some getting to know us stuff too yeah some getting to know us because you know it's you know we we have a conversation we want to involve you in the conversation we don't want this to be super like fun and collaborative so yeah um yeah is there anything else you want to add, Mama? No, but I will just say it's been a long day of a long week, and I'm happy to have my weekly beer with my beautiful daughter. So I'm very grateful for you and that we have this to share every week. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoy having a weekly beer. <laughs> I also enjoy having a weekly beer, and I appreciate you, Mom. I, I appreciate you, baby. And we appreciate all of y'all. So we'll see you next Wednesday. Woo-woo. All right. Take care, y'all. Bye.